It's really wonderful to be here. I'm Jeremy Allaire, the co-founder and CEO of Circle, joined with Pascal, of course. I think all of you know probably better than me. You never know. You never know. So I'm the CEO at Ledger, just in case. So I think we wanted to really just use this as an opportunity to have a conversation between the two of us. I think, as some of you likely know, both of us have been working in the crypto industry for a very long time, have been building, I think, two very significant long-term companies in the space and so can provide interesting perspective. And I think we, we're each working on, I think, very complementary things. So it'll be, I think, a great conversation. Well, good. Maybe just to set the stage, I think you've obviously been in this really significant position as one of the most significant European crypto companies. The role of Europe in this broader ecosystem is, I think, understated, perhaps, just given how many projects and how many developers and others are, are building out of Europe. But I think maybe to set the stage, it would be great to hear you talk a little bit about where is Europe in the crypto industry with the recent legislative work, European-wide regulation. Is that going to create a bigger opportunity? Is that creating more challenges? Just big picture, what is the state of, of crypto in Europe? Sure. Thanks. So the first, I think, you know, Web3 or the crypto phenomenon is an interesting, you know, compared to Web2, where suddenly com companies are popping sort of everywhere in the world, and it's not like a US-centric only phenomenon. What's interesting, if you think about, like, who are the biggest companies in the space, you know, most of them are actually non-US companies, you know, think Binance, think FTX, etc., Ledger, uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's the first thing. The second thing is for us, you know, what's really difficult is then suddenly, you know, regulation everywhere in the world becomes sort of relevant because we are international companies by definition. You know, Ledger is shipping products in every country in the world. And we've been doing so since the beginning. I remember us launching a product one day and the first country that we shipped it to was uh, Azerbaijan which is, you know, kind of random for a tech company, but in crypto, it makes perfect sense. And so therefore, you know, regulation has always been like a, a sword hanging over our heads. And we need to worry about regulation wherever it comes from. And of course, there are big blocks. US is a big block. Uh, Europe is a big block because in Europe, the regulatory is very strong, you know, maybe too strong sometimes uh, with a very heavy end. But also, the, you know, people look at Europe as a regulatory beacon. Like, you know, it's like whatever Europe will decide will have an impact on the world and, you know, whether it's good or bad, but it will definitely have an impact on the world. So the difference between Europe and the US right now is US is very organized. Coin Center, like, you know, you guys have have had like, the, you know, bigger companies for a longer time. And so therefore, like a bigger sort of lobby and public policy organization through uh, Coin Center, for example, but other organizations. And in Europe, we were pretty uh, naked, actually. Uh, when uh, TFR, uh, when Mika and TFR like sort of hit the fan, you know, everybody in Europe woke up, including us, being like, oh my God, like, you know, and this has been in the making for, you know, couple of years already. And I mean, it was not new. It's just that nobody was big enough to take care of the problem. So I think where Europe is right now is, is okay. There is always a very conservative temptation in Europe to regulate everything fast. And it's in the world of Ronald Reagan's. If he moves tax it, if he keeps on moving, regulate it. If he stops moving, subsidize it. And so in France, taxes started at 
<laughs> so we've done that. And then now we go into regulation and hopefully we won't go into uh, subsidizing Web3 for Web3 to exist in Europe. But I think right now this is not what's happening. Actually, we managed as, when I say we, is like the community, regulators, you know, everyone involved, we managed to to keep it sort of on the safer side and protect self-custody and protect sort of freedom. The battle is not over and, you know, regulation is long-term always. And so we're working on that. With Ledger, we're building now a force at the European level with bigger companies uh, just to represent crypto uh, in Brussels, which is not the case still today. And we, you know, we sort of hope for the best. But Europe is definitely looking at the US, US, you know, sort of looking at Europe. So these are the two big blocks that will move the world in terms of regulation, I think. I would agree with that. I have a follow-up question, which is, I think, gets to the heart of the matter and to some degree, the heart of, of crypto and even your business, which is the, the European long-term, long-standing focus on privacy as like a fundamental right, a fundamental human right. If anything, GDPR taught the world that privacy as a first principle, privacy by design is so fundamental. But in this area of financial transactions, there's almost like another philosophy. And But crypto, of course, creates these digital bearer assets and creates open networks and allows for just greater degrees of human freedom than maybe the closed financial system. And I wonder if you think over time, there'll be some kind of uh, reconciliation between the core values of privacy and eventually how governments in Europe treat the use of, of digital bearer assets. This is a deep question. I think the short answer would be, I think these are two different monsters. And I think Europe think about these two issues sort of in parallel and differently. And, you know, I'm not even sure that at some point they meet because I think the way that Europe think about privacy with GDPR, et cetera, is one thing, but it's like for the non-important stuff. I mean, you know, it's for the, honestly, the stuff that nobody cares about. I mean, you know, if I have to say it, like, you know, my previous company was Criteo, so we had, you know, user data and we asked users how they felt about us having their, their data. They didn't care, like 1% care. And on the 1%, after you explain, 90% don't care. Uh, and so people don't care. People don't even understand what it is. So I think it's a GDPR is a regulator fantasy. And it's actually the worst thing that has happened to Europe. When it comes to money, Europe is very different. So there is a, what I call the Chinese temptation to know everything that you're doing and to sacrifice uh, freedom on the author of the greater good. And so the greater good is we want to stop the drug dealers and we want to you know, stop bad people, etc. And because we want to do this, then all of you now need to prove that you're not a drug dealer or uh, that you're not a terrorist. And I think, you know, with cryptocurrencies and with CBDC, the crypto euro, there is a huge temptation for Europe to sort of like put control on top of uh, citizens to just know what you do with your money, but, sure. but for, lot, for your good. A lot of governments have China envy. Well, uh, but for the greater good, for your good, for your, you know, yeah. for your benefit. But so I think, you know, these two things will be conflicting. We are big advocates of freedom and, uh, but freedom with control. And I think interestingly, if regulators were to look at really what public blockchains are is really freedom with control. You're anonymous, but it's a public blockchain. It's public. Everything that you do will be recorded forever. So you better do right. Yeah, I mean, it's what I find interesting is that, you know, in some ways like GDPR or kind of the, the using regulation as a way to deal with, for example, 
the centralization and consolidation of user data by large third-party companies, right? Which is in some ways the, res the, the development of that regime was in response to the growth of Web 2.0 companies. Even GDPR itself was a kind of response to all of the kind of intrusions, right? But crypto itself is a more organic response. It's sort of organically growing out of the internet. It's growing out of the open source ethos of the internet and from uh, you know, creators that are trying to create a new infrastructure in a sense, uh, a new a global infrastructure that puts privacy at the core. In some ways, it's maybe a better response than the, uh, the, the policy and regulatory response. You're 100% right, but it puts privacy and security at the core. What's very interesting exactly. with blockchain technologies is the security aspect. The problem with centralized databases, they'll be hacked. It's not the problem of if, it's the problem of when. And actually, even like, you know, the latest hack was a billion users or a billion from the Chinese police. So they, the, even the Chinese police got hacked. And I'm thinking, who hacks the Chinese police? Like, who has a death wish? But people hack the Chinese police. So if the Chinese police can be hacked, imagine yeah. you know, everybody will be hacked. Yes, the honeypots. Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. And so, you know, decentralization and what crypto does is actually the best answer to the future threats of cyber, the future cyber threats. And cyber threats, there is one book that you all need to read. It's called, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. And so once you read it, you're like, aha, you, you have a bit of a aha moment. So, you know, cyber threats today are at one level. Next year, they'll be higher. The year after, they'll be higher, etc. It's actually exponential. Threats, uh, you know, theft of identity in France last year. I mean, the year before where, I can't remember exactly the years, but I think it's 2020 was 1 million, 2021 was 5 million. So it's actually quite exponential what they can do because of, or thanks to, uh, well, because of the Ukraine-Russian war, some of hacker groups were exposed because they were mixed with Ukrainian Russians. And so they were sort of tending on each other, like some groups that were exposed. And it's only one group. I'll give you one example, but there are many like this at 2,500 employees on the payroll. So bigger than our both companies combined and 10,000 auxiliaries. So you have 2,500 people that hack every day. That's all they do. And then they have 10,000 auxiliaries. So 1,200 people, more than 1,200 people whose only job is to hack companies like us, every databases, et cetera. So this is the world that we live in and we need to understand this. Once you understand this, you're thinking, okay, well, decentralization makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought about the, and tried to explain to people that public chains are, are really like the next logical infrastructure layer of the internet and specifically designed for the kind of uh, resiliency that is needed in, in the evolution of, of the internet itself. Uh, maybe I ask you a few questions. So you guys just launched, I don't know which one I want to start with. I, I'm going to start with the uh, more provocative one. So you just launched the, your crypto euro. And the question is, why is an American company launching a crypto euro? It's a great question. So a, a couple things. I think the first, many people don't realize that we actually founded Circle in Dublin. And so we are actually a European company from the start, and we maintain a significant investment in Europe. I'm based in the US. We're a very globally distributed company with people all over. So we, we, we think of ourselves first as a global company, as a global technology company. We've invested a lot in building a regulated stablecoin model out of the US. So we, we made very significant investments there. Many people don't realize that 
we, for a number of years, had a product available throughout the EU that allowed you to take euro and transmit it over the Bitcoin network as a payment rail, which was not a good idea. Um, <laughs> it had a lot of limitations. But we've always been interested in how can we take what we think of as traditional money, government debt money, and uh, create a cryptocurrency versions of those that then can operate over this public blockchain infrastructure. So five years ago, when we decided to build USDC, we started with dollars because it was the most common currency used in digital asset markets. And we had already established a very clear regulatory framework for electronic money with stablecoins in the US. So we were one of the very first companies to work with the regulators in the US to get that built. So that has grown alongside the growth of the digital asset markets. And, and so you know, USDC is quite large now and, and the regulatory environment is also maturing uh, as well. But as a company, we're very interested in the ultimately having the world's largest currencies work on blockchains. And whether it's for traditional payments or it's used in financial market applications, we believe that the power of, uh, of fiat digital currency is quite significant. And so it was only a matter of time to pursue introducing other stablecoins. The good news for us, at least, was that we had built up over many years a regulated model for how to do a fiat currency stablecoin. And we'd done that working with regulators in the US and have very strict rules around reserves, uh, disclosures, and have, you know, as a result, also integration into the fiat banking system. And so we were able to bring that to work with Euro. Now, our belief also is that we now have clarity for what European-issued stablecoins, how they'll be treated under the law in the coming years. And so now that we have that clarity, it creates a very clear path for a company like Circle to issue European currency stablecoins. Clarity that came from the Mica. Mica, yes. Yeah. So, so now that there's clarity, there's a path. There's a path to European-wide crypto-based uh, euro stablecoins. I think up until the recent laws, there was not a clear path because it was not clear how it would be treated under EU law. And it did not seem like something that could be ultimately accepted as a mainstream payment token in everyday applications. But now we see a path uh, there. Would you say that US regulation gave you sort of a, a first mover advantage in a way? And, and the fact that now Mika is in place gave you the clear signing to go? Very much so. Yeah, so we have a framework that we've, we've built, I think, the largest regulated dollar stablecoin in the world, and hopefully soon the largest dollar stablecoin in the world overall. And we've done that with the pressure testing of, you know, regulators and examiners and uh, operational, you know, capabilities that are needed to do that. So we're, I think, quite credible to kind of replicate the model in other currencies. But exactly what you said. I think when we saw that the, there would be European-wide uh, frameworks for this, that was a, a huge positive development from our perspective. Because ultimately, we, we see this as something that, of course, will issue out of Europe, will operate under European regulations, and that we expect to be you know, something that could be very, very widely used in many different types of applications, many different types of commerce, 
Uh, so we're, we're obviously at the very beginning of the use of, of stable coins in everyday uh, society. So that's a segue to my next question. I was wondering, like in terms of infrastructure, like, you know, it's one thing to do a stable coin, but, you know, how do you sort of deploy it in the market? And so what have you done in the US that you replicate in Europe? What are the main actors into your uh, stable coin deployments for as infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, we, so first we think of ourselves as a kind of platform and infrastructure company. Uh, so we think about it as a platform that other developers can build on top of. That's the approach and philosophy we took with USDC is to be a kind of neutral player that then thousands of companies or tens of thousands of companies could connect to and build on top of and wanted to, to provide the market with the assurance of an infrastructure that people knew was, was regulated, that had seamless integration into the existing banking system that was transparent. And we focused a lot of energy on working with the global ecosystem of firms in, in, in crypto to grow that use. So, and we continue to invest a huge amount in promoting the development of other you know, products and, and services that connect to things like USDC. So I think a lot of what we built up, we can bring immediately over to Euro. So the ecosystem that we built around USDC can very easily and quickly adopt Eurocoin. The banking partners that we've built up, the global regulatory position that we've established also kind of convey to the Eurocoin project. And so even just, we're only a few weeks into this, we have many companies throughout the ecosystem who are turning on the support for Eurocoin, exchanges, wallets, DeFi protocols, market makers, many other types of firms are starting to, to get involved. And I think we hopefully will see kind of the network effects that we've established with USDC. We can see some of those same network effects take hold for Euro. Do you have a few KPIs to share when it comes to USDC? And so we have in mind like what could come to... Sure. Yeah. I mean, so USDC for perspective, two years ago was less than a billion in circulation. Today, there's over 55 billion USDC in circulation. It's the fourth largest cryptocurrency in the world. I, th I hope and expect it will be the third largest in the world in the near future. We've handled over $5 trillion in transaction volume with USDC. And uh, there are now you know, 10,000 plus companies that have built integrations into the USDC smart contracts. So wallets, financial services products, it's the most borrowed you know, dollar asset in the crypto economy. It's the most used dollar asset in, in DeFi all around the world. And now major companies, major payments companies, like even legacy payments companies like Visa and MasterCard are integrating things like USDC as a settlement uh, technology. So we're seeing, you know, I think a lot of exciting developments there and we want to be able to carry those forward for other stables that are launched by Circle. Yeah, super exciting. Okay, but tell me the difference between what you do and a CBDC. Like, what, what would be the difference between what Europe is working on and what you're bringing to market? Well, I think the major difference, whether it's USDC or, or Euro stablecoin, is that these are actually in the market and working at scale and growing. And tens of thousands of companies are building on top of them. And they're built on a philosophy of open public blockchains and of open developer ecosystems and a kind of public internet infrastructure and all the benefits that come from that. And so I think philosophically, blockchain native 
fiat digital currency models uh, provide a path for rapid innovation and development that is unmatched today. And so in many ways, we're, in our view, we're just working on new layers of infrastructure on the internet and improving the internet and improving the internet in terms of its ability to support uh, economic value exchange, not just in representations of, of things like fiat currency, but, but also the innovations in building blocks of commerce, building blocks of finance, building blocks for the organization of corporate forums like DAOs. All of this innovation that's taking place is very synergistic with things like, like public chain stablecoins. I think you know governments do have China envy and they do, I think, think that they need to compete in a world where uh, there's a national monopoly on things like this. But remember, the, the Chinese digital currency project was not a response to cryptocurrency necessarily. It was much more of a response to the growth of private power in China and part of an effort to rein in private power in China, Tencent and Ali specifically, and to create an infrastructure that the government could control with massive financial surveillance. And it has a, a much more political agenda. Now, it's not clear to me that anyone actually wants to use the Chinese digital currency. In fact, it has very limited uh, uptake. The only people who use it are people who get airdropped it for like public uh, benefits. But like the, the actual people in China don't trust the government. They, they would rather use the private intermediaries to use electronic money. And I think that society, whether it's individuals, households, firms, others, are going to choose which kind of economic system they want to participate in. And they're going to choose the more open, interoperable, private, secure models. Uh, and so I think if there's a competition, the open internet infrastructure and the private innovation and open source innovation that happens will win that any day. Amen. I agree. But so it now begs the question on, okay, so now you get your crypto euro and, and, and you already done it with a crypto dollar and, you know, this open network with DeFi on top of it. And so the holy grail is like, how can you code on top of, how can you let, you know, company code on top of your stable coins? And so can you tell us like sort of what has already happened in the US and, you know, what, what could we see in terms of DeFi products coming on top of the crypto euro in, in Europe soon? It's a great topic. I mean, I, I think even going back almost 10 years ago when, when I was working on founding Circle, the thing that really captured my imagination was the idea of uh, programmable money. And my background is in actually not in the financial sector. It's in building internet infrastructure. I've built multiple internet programming languages. I've built app infrastructure products in the past. So I was excited about the idea that you could have a representation of a dollar or a euro or that was actually expressed as a cryptocurrency and that that would be programmable. And there's never been programmable money until now. Open banking APIs is not programmable money. But if you actually have a digital bearer asset, like a digital instrument, and you can, you can interact with that like a piece of data on the internet, that's very, very profound. And so that was all kind of a concept like nine years ago. Smart contracts were like an idea on napkins. There were white papers. But now that we actually have these general purpose computing environments, these public chain computing environments, we're really starting to see all kinds of innovation happen. 
And so today, right, all of the primitives, the financial you know, primitives of borrowing and lending, of you know, risk management, the building blocks of, of real commerce and finance are being built up on the decentralized infrastructure. And so all of that infrastructure conveys onto multiple currencies. So I think you'll see, of course, very robust native stablecoin FX markets, which will allow for the clearing and settlement of cross-currency transactions 24-7, 365, at essentially close to no cost. And then that's like a composable building block for many, many other things. But even the most basic things like, you know, we're seeing the birth of new on-chain debt capital market structures or, or, or kind of um, lending structures that are for issuing credit, unsecured credit, and doing that on a blockchain and protocols to support that. And so when you see those kinds of things evolve, that has nothing to do with the dollar, right? Those are just market primitives that then become very, very powerful for you know, stimulating real economic activity. And so I, I'm, I'm very excited about basically every use case you have for money, you know, being able to be handled in on-chain infrastructure. And I think that will be powerful for the euro, just as it is powerful for the dollar. I think that's super exciting. And so I've been asked uh, whether we had an announcement uh, to make today. And my answer was no, actually, we don't have, uh, I mean, outside of these guys launching the crypto euro, but like, you know, Ledger and Circle, do we have an announcement to make tomorrow, uh, today? No. The crypto dollar, the Circle crypto dollar is already supporting on, on Ledger and on Ledger Enterprise. Like this is something that we support. And we support crypto, every cryptocurrency, every, you know, public cryptocurrency very natively on Ledger. So this is not an announcement because it's sort of like riding it's a bicycle. Built it's yeah. built in. Like That's this, the is, beauty this is what of, we'll uh, do. Open infrastructure. Exactly. Yeah. But if you want an announcement, like we will support these guys on uh, on Ledger. All right. Cheers. Uh, because no, because like, you know, the DNA of the companies are very uh, interlinked. Like we, we all build like, you know, open source yeah. uh, companies and for the world to be able to, to, to be on top. So I think this is super exciting. Yeah. Maybe a follow up question on that, that in terms of our companies, you know, I know we've both been through multiple phases of this market and, you know, for people who are building their first crypto companies or building in the space that are new right now is, is, uh, is a quote unquote bear market. We've seen all of this value destruction. You see regulatory enforcement actions. You see all kinds of, uh, literally companies going insolvent. It's sort of like at some level one could say, oh, wow, that's really scary. I think our perspective is different, but I think maybe just for everyone here to just share in a minute or two, your perspective on how to think about where we are right now and how to position oneself for the growth that is, is still happening. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's, I captured it in one sentence and it's don't be greedy. I think what happened in the market recently is greed. You know, when, people, when it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Like, don't invest in stuff that is too good to be true. And greed is, you know, we, we've pitched for as long as I can remember, you know, self-custody and, you know, why would you trust 100% of your Bitcoin for like, you know, 4% to a third company where the risk is actually you will never see your Bitcoins again. You know, that 4% for me is greed. Like, you know, what's not good with, with Bitcoin on itself? Like, you know, keep it, you know, hold it, wait forever, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, build, you know, the companies that we're building and, you know, the spirit in which we're building the company, it's a bit selfless. Like, you know, at Ledger, we don't, you know, money 
comes after you've done everything right and not before. Like, you know, money is eventually a, a reward and the reward comes from the, your customers, the community, et cetera, because you, you've given them a service that they like and that they want to purchase again, et cetera. But like being greedy is the worst thing in this space because it makes you, it triggers every wrong decision to build for the short term, to build for the next quarter, to build for, you know, something that is not real, something that doesn't have a real purpose. When you build a company, the question is why do you build the company? And if the why is uh, to make 20% uh, API, <laughs> APY, like, you know, <laughs> think again, like that's not a, that's not a good why. Typically when I entered into crypto, it was not to, it was because I, I didn't want advertising anymore. Like advertising is interesting, but you know, it certainly don't cure cancer. So going into crypto was like to build something, you know, bigger where the why is, you know, for us, it's freedom, it's empowering people, it's giving them technology so they can become self-sovereign because, you know, what's happening in the world right now in the web is like, you know, you're trapped into systems and you're not really free. And the question is, you know, is technology here to enslave us or free us? And we think it's here to free us. So, you know, if we do that right, then sure, we make money. And, but then, you know, you make money only to serve your customers best. That's great perspective. Yeah. Taking a long-term view and focusing on not taking shortcuts, doing things right, even if people tell you that you're not going to be successful with that. And it's very frustrating. Wrong. No, it's yeah. very frustrating because yeah. you and I have been in the same situation. Like yeah. sometimes you see companies like skyrocketing and I was looking at them and I was like, this makes no sense to me, but okay. And then for some, for some time, like you're the dumb person in the room. Like, you know, people know better than you, they grow faster, etc. Well, okay, well, I'm happy that, uh, you know, it's for me, it's the, uh, the tail of the turtle and the hare. You know, in the end, the turtle wins. You know, and in this race, the turtle will win. So we are the turtle. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you, Merci Pascal. Merci à tous. Thank you.